This is our first in a series of Hearing God. And uh, I wanted to start out by just kind of stating things out clearly um, uh, as, as the finances are going out. You have been so good and so generous. And uh, the elders, two weeks ago in a meeting, we were wrestling with uh, just a little bit of the extra money we're finishing up the year with. And uh, I can tell you that we were able to bless some of our international workers uh, with a little bit extra help. And you may or may not know, but we actually do budget from our general offerings, not just anything designated to any projects that we're doing, because uh, we believe that strongly in the work that God has called us to do as a church. So thank you. Thank you very much. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for who you are. That you are a God of love. That you are a God who, even though we may be going through the valley of a shadow of death, you, God, are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You want to have intimacy and relationship with us. So many of us for years have said we do not follow a religion, but we have a relationship. But yet, God, let's be honest, many of us, that relationship has turned into ritual. That relationship has turned into doctrine. That relationship has turned into dry, rote Bible reading. We have long since stopped hearing your voice because of disappointment, hurt, disillusionment, whatever it may be, and we have kind of dried up our faith into, honestly, religion. So God, as we start the hearing, God, today, would you do a special and a powerful work in us? Tear down our presuppositions. Tear down our biases. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. When I was 18 years old and just graduated from high school, I had my one grandmother living in Edmonton, so off I went to go visit her, packed up my car. Uh, she had a little apartment downtown Edmonton, and I stayed with her for a few weeks. And during that few weeks, now I already knew this sort of history. I knew that my grandmother had left my grandfather. I knew a little bit of the details, but I didn't know a lot. Let me tell you, the grandfather that I knew was kind, loving, caring. And in fact, people who are in this church or have visited from Hythe, which is just a few towns over, they often would talk about my grandfather being the guy that when he used to deliver parcels in Hythe, all the kids would jump on the wagon, and he was well-known and well-loved. As I sat with my grandmother, she began to tell me another side to my grandfather. That loving, kind, caring gentleman had what she said was a drinking problem. And when my grandfather drank, he turned into a very kind, caring person into a suspicious, angry, vengeful person. And when he would go out to the bars in the evenings, the guys thought it was funny to tease him about his wife, and they would say, oh, I enjoyed kissing your wife last night. And my grandfather, in his drunken rage, would go home, and you can imagine, my, wife, my grandmother told me the stories. 
She said the final straw was the evening when, like usual, he'd been at the bar and they lived on a farm near Hythe and uh, he came home and he had grabbed her, threw her on the table and just then his brother from Peace River had come to visit. There was no telephone to give warning that he was coming and he walked in the house just to see his brother in the midst of doing what his brother had done a lot of times And he grabbed his brother and restrained him in his drunken rage and told my grandmother to pack up her stuff and the two children that he was helping her get away from this horrible situation. Now I tell you that story not to air my family's laundry, but I want to tell you that that set up a bias in me. And that bias was whenever I hear people reveling or enjoying or even thinking that alcohol's okay, it gets me just frosty underneath. (laughs) I don't like alcohol. This week I posted something on Facebook and from a male point of view, I thought it was perfectly fine, but I had a family member point out that it was maybe inappropriate. You see, I have a bias, didn't see anything. My family member has a little different bias because she's a woman, and so I withdrew the Facebook post. I think it was about 10 years ago I took a look at alcohol biblically, and I began to realize that my bias didn't have a lot of foundation in Scripture. And I did come to the point where if people wanted to have a glass of wine or a bottle of beer, I'll be okay with it. I won't like it, by the way. I would first, if you ever started bragging about alcohol, I'd bring out Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Quit using alcohol as a crutch. Quit using alcohol as something to feel better. Go to God, I would tell people, and I will still tell you that. But I began to realize, because of my family history, that I did have a bias. And I will now tell people, if you can have a half a glass of wine or a bottle of beer and stop, that's okay. But the Bible is clear that drunkenness is not what we do. And if you can't stop at that glass of wine or that bottle of beer, don't have any. It's a really simple principle I will tell everybody. But I say that all to you about my grandmother, about my grandmother's, my grandparents' marriage ending, about alcohol, just to say that we all have biases. And a lot of our biases are born out of our pain. It's born out of our own stories. And when we talk about hearing God and listening to God, uh, we all probably, as young children, young adults, brand new Christians, we were so excited in this. Well, we were told this is a relationship thing with God. and, And most of us began to exercise Hearing his voice, we would read his word and it would jump out at us and it would correct us and train us and teach us in righteousness. We, we would go to church and Bible study and it would just, we would eat it up, we'd be so excited and we'd go and conquer the world and then reality hits in and we create or get a bias in our hearts. Well, as we go through this morning, we're going to go through kind of five biases And I am convinced that a lot, one of the biases in particular, uh, they really came about as a reaction to something that was going on. Now, the Christian Missionary Alliance is part of the holiness movement. 
Now, it's pre-Pentecostal movement, but we have our biases that come about because of the experiences we have, and I want to warn you that your biases or your experiences may not necessarily be founded in truth. And so I'm just asking you to open up your hearts and your minds today and have a little bit of a listen and to seriously consider attending one of our Hearing God classes over the next six weeks. This last week, and just a long introduction, and I'm sorry, this last week, oh, the reason it's a long introduction, because the middle of the sermon's really dry as toast, just warning you. You gotta put on your big smart pants and uh, listen really carefully. I've tried to, there's a difference between teaching and preaching, by the way, and I've tried to move it as much into preaching I could, but there's just so much foundational stuff I wanna talk about. It's gonna get a little dry, so just enjoy this last little story. On Thursday night this last week, I was wrestling through an issue in my life, and I'm not talking about a sin issue per se, but this issue had consumed me for two nights of sleep. I was just distraught. I didn't know what to do. And I want to be honest, what I tried to do is I tried to fix all the problem myself. And every time I stepped in, the problem just got worse. And I remember Thursday night laying in bed with my wife saying, I don't know what to do. So my wife has been through all the discipleship training that we've now started doing, and she said, hey, why don't we use the star principle? And so she dug out the star, and it wasn't a physical star, it's an acronym, and star stands for stop, literally meaning breathe deep, and whatever you do, just stop trying to figure things out. Let your mind slow down. If you have to, listen to scripture or, or listen to some worship songs. Just stop. And then when you've stopped, take a big, deep breath and open up your heart to God. Just say, God, I'm, I'm slowing down enough, but I'm going to be honest. I was pretty wound up, and I was trying. And the A in, so you take a breath, and the A in stars, you begin to appreciate, and you have thanksgiving towards God, and you thank him for his love. Circumstances might not be what you like. You thank him for some of the past stuff he's done, maybe the present stuff, and then you listen. And in your listening, then the R's respond. So I got to that kind of listening point, and I wasn't there very good. And my wife looks at me, because we had been praying and reading some scriptures. She said, so what is God saying? And I turned to her in anger and said, I don't hear. And then all of a sudden, and you're wondering what God's voice sounds like. It was just little quiet whispers. Anthony, you've been trying to fix this yourself. Stop. And I said, he just told me that I need to stop. What do you think? My wife laughed and said, you're always trying to fix things. I think he's probably speaking. It's good he's speaking to you and you're not trying to tell me what he's saying to me. He's talking to you and I, I think it's probably true, so go on. And I said, well, I'm, I'm and then all of a sudden I heard, just be patient. Don't do anything. When the time is right, it'll become obvious and you can step back in and try to bring an end to your struggle. 
So I said to Carolyn, okay, this is what I heard. And she said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, I'm going to write down just a few points of what I would like to say and do to kind of fix some of the situation I'm in. And understand the situation I was in was mostly my own fault. And I kept trying to fix it. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, I really need to fix this. And Carolyn goes, no, you don't. I said, but it's just going to get worse if I don't do anything. She said, it isn't. And I thought, okay, I could probably give it a week or two, I said, and we'll see what God can do. And uh, I, I kid you not, the next day I come to work, and by noon, by noon, something happened that I knew. I, I took out my list, and I actually read it out loud. It was time to then take action. And the whole thing was gone. The whole struggle was over. The whole problem evaporated. And I say that to you, friends. We, we come with such a bias where we've been so disappointed. We, we've heard God wrong. Or honestly, sometimes God wants us to go through what we go through. And we don't want to abandon the faith, so we just go into doctrine and scripture and Bible memorization. And we no longer hear his voice. Let me start this sermon by qualifying the question whether God speaks today. The biblical canon, if you're worried, from my point of view, from the scripture's point of view, is closed. God is not writing any more scripture. God is not adding to the Bible today. And if you think I'm saying that or anything that we're going through is that, we are not. In fact, the Bible is the primary way God speaks. All ideas and doctrines must flow through and from the scriptures. Any voice I hear, any thought I have, any direction I take, I need to let it go through scripture. In fact, people who divorce their hearing God from the Holy Bible, they end up in trouble. The Bible is the rock. The Bible is the source of truth and direction. Over the last number of months, we've been going through the book of Acts, and I think you'll agree with me that it has been, oh, I'll even say shocking to this old pastor, how many times God gave dreams, visions, words. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and me, so, and I used to read that and go, how does that work? And now I get it so much better. I mean, this is the pastor that 30 years ago sat in a seminar and was given practical tools and advice how to hear from God. I remember experiencing it. I remember going through it. But somehow, life experiences, hurts, disappointed, shut me down. So yes, I did listen to God when I was really in trouble. When I was really stressed, I'd try to seek his face, and, and he would speak to me. And I've come to understand now, he actually wants to talk all the time. He wants to be in conversation. So today, I thought, okay, first Sunday of hearing God. I don't want to repeat what the message is that we're going to be going through this week. So what do I do? And I noticed that in the Hearing God manual, there's an appendum. And in the appendum is, well, it actually has 10 barriers to people hearing God. And these are usually biblical arguments that have been raised up over the years or, or some thought things that have been raised up. So I want to cover just five of them, and I may only get through to four depending on the time. The number one thing that often when people are hurt and they've misheard God or they've, they've actually gone through a bad experience and they think, well, uh, God couldn't have been speaking to me then, 
usually people will, they love, and this is like one of the king verses of the foundation of people not wanting to go through this hearing God stuff. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. You know 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter? Well, it goes on from God is love, and it describes everything in love, and then in verse 8 it says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness, or sometimes it's translated perfection, comes, what is in part disappears. And so, really, historically, what happened was along came the holiness movement, the Pentecostal movement. And a lot of churches began to create or look at Scripture and say, wait a minute, that's wrong. And they began to look at the Scriptures and they looked at this verse and said, well, it's obvious the perfection is the Bible. When the Bible's established, then all those gifts and tongues and the prophecy, all that stuff goes away. Now I have one little problem with all of that, and I have for years. My little problem is the Greek word never ever says the Bible. I mean, the Bible is perfect. I'm not going to dispute that. The Bible is complete. I'm not going to dispute that. But in context, this isn't what this is talking about. Let's read on. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, still same topic, same conversation, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Could that be the scripture still? Listen. Then we will see face to face. Now, if you go back to chapter 10 and 11, you see the second coming of Christ. You get up to chapter 14 and 15, you see the second coming of Christ. And I would argue here, this is talking about Jesus' return. That's the perfect, that's the complete one. That's when everything will be set right. I don't believe this is talking about the scriptures, and I hope you'll carry on with me through some of these arguments. I don't want to go any more into this because you're going to hear this argument from 1 Corinthians in the lesson, but I wanted to bring it up just to kind of hopefully tear away some of that bias so that you will consider going through the Hearing God series. Number two, number two reason why people often uh, come up with a biblical argument why they don't want to actually hear the voice of God the miraculous gifts ceased with the death of the last apostle, people will argue. In fact, this was fairly new in teaching. It was a little smatterings of it going back. But B.B. Warfield, a professor at Princeton Seminary, this is 1910, so pretty good time for Princeton Seminary, he wrote a book in 1918 called Counterfeit Miracles. And I will argue this was a reaction to the holiness movement and the Pentecostal movement which started in Azusa Street in California just a few years before that. Warfield taught that the purpose of these gifts was to authenticate the apostles as trustworthy bearers of doctrine. And that actually is true. But here's where he carried it on. When they died, this authenticating power died with them because the perfect came, the scriptures came. The major problem with Warfield's argument is that its conclusion does not follow its premises. 
The major premise, listen to this, the apostles as the foundation of the church experienced unique wonder-working powers to authenticate their ministry. I have no problem with that. The minor premise, the apostles are dead. Conclusion, no one experiences wonder-working power in ministry today. Are you following? While it is true that the apostles had unique, miraculous powers, and it is true that they are dead, it does not logically follow that no other Christians can experience the miraculous gift. Jack Teer, who is a theologian, points out how flawed this reasoning is when applied to church planting, per se. We could say of church planting, only the major premise, only the apostles planted churches in Acts, minor premise, the apostles are dead, Conclusion, no one should plant churches today. All that is needed to refute this view from a scriptural standpoint is to find examples of non-apostolic Christians using the miraculous gifts of the New Testament, such as in Mark chapter 9, verse 38, we come across an unknown man who casts out demons in Jesus' name. In Luke 10, 9, Jesus commissions 72 disciples to preach and to heal. In Acts 9, 17, we read that Ananias heals Paul. In Romans 12, 6, Paul refers to the gift of prophecy in Rome, a church not yet visited by an apostle. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, gifts of healing and miracles are experienced in the Corinthian church without an apostle present. Galatians 3, 5, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit who works miracles among you. To you is plural and must refer to the entire congregation which is not led by an apostle. 1 Thessalonians 5.20, Paul demands that the Thessalonians not hinder the prophetic gift. The list of miraculous gifts experienced by non-apostles in the New Testament grows much longer if you include the gift of tongues. So number three reason why many people, an argument that has been built up, why God doesn't speak prophetically or otherwise to people today. Allowing miraculous gifts such as prophecy undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. Now this is an argument that I had been given and I even believed in a bit. I was so careful if I ever, and I still would say that you need to be so careful when you believe God's speaking to you. You need to go to the Scriptures. Anybody that divorces the Scriptures from hearing God, they're in deep trouble. <coughs> I was going to say in deep doo-doo, but I'll retract that back. Now, this argument is concerned with protecting the scriptures as the final and authoritative revelation of God's inherent word. That's good. The history of the church records numerous spurious groups that plunged into heresy when they became unanchored from scripture. That is true. The charismatic movement, it would be argued, has been criticized as, criticized as seeming to equate a word from God with scriptural authority. And I would argue there are some groups like that, but I am not one of them. The Alliance is not one of them. And many of the charismatic denominations I know aren't like that. This argument would be true if the New Testament gift of prophecy were like Old Testament prophecy in its authority. Listen to this. If Paul would have gifts, if Paul would have gifts to speak for God just as authoritatively as Isaiah or Jeremiah did, then we would agree that those gifts have passed away. God is not writing new scripture today. Are you hearing that? New Testament prophecy is not equal to scriptural in authority. 
and no responsible non-cessationist claims that contemporary prophetic gifts have such authority. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, and you're hearing this, right? We are not adding to the Bible. If anything ever contradicts or even adds to the Bible, it is not from God. When you come together, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Clearly, Paul does not mean that people were speaking with Old Testament prophetic authority. If so, why did Paul demand that these revelations be tested by the assembly first? If you read on in that text, you'll read that. In the New Testament, the word reveal is not always used in reference to the Bible. It can simply mean divinely prompted, divinely prompting guidance of direction. Paul says that God will make clear to the Philippians the nature of their attitude in Philippians 3.15. Paul prays for the Ephesians, listen to this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelations so that you may know him better. Are you hearing it? This is a relationship faith. This isn't rote doctrine and Bible. Nothing again wrong. I love doctrine. I love the Bible. But God wants a relationship with you. Pressing this argument to its logical conclusion, one would have to do away with the illuminating, guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit altogether. For these would compromise the sufficiency of Scripture. All of us, whether you come from the most conservative background, would understand and know that you should never pick up your Bible without saying, God, reveal to me what's in these words. If you do not listen to the Holy Spirit when you're reading the Bible, you could end up off track. You need to understand that when I have listened to God, I sometimes do get it wrong. And I will argue with you that as we go through the six weeks of hearing God, there is one lesson in particular. There are 10 good tests that you can exercise. You don't have to do them all, but good 10 tests in order to hear God. Now, Dan Riggler, a couple of years ago, came to my office. If you know, Dan likes to uh, and feels by God to drag a cross, like literally a cross, down streets. And he said to me something about, I've been thinking about Europe maybe, and I was sitting in my office because he's testing what God is saying to him. And I said, you know, it was just off the top of my head. I said, well, <laughs> off the top of my head, I believe it was a God thing. Uh, you know, England, I said, England has a Christian memory. You watch any of the TV shows, they always talk Sunday school talk. And I said, maybe with that Christian memory going on the cross down the street, you'll get somewhere with him. And long story short, he ended up in London, England. And it was awesome. Number four, an argument built up against why you should hear God. The miraculous gifts were given only during the three periods of history when new revelation was given. Have you heard that one? Therefore, they are not to be given today. This view teaches that miracles happened in the days of Moses and Joshua during the time of Elijah and Elisha and in the time of Christ and the apostles. This is when biblical scripture was written. The major problem with this argument is that a great number of supernatural events occur outside of these three periods. What is more, even if it is shown that the miraculous decreased at certain times, there may be other reasons for the decline. 
such as rebellion or sin. Suggesting in three periods of redemptive history, miraculous phenomena were more prevalent than at any other time, does not prove that miraculous phenomena in other times were non-existent, nor does it prove that an increase in miraculous phenomenon could not appear in subsequent phases of redemptive history. And I think we all know stories of, I talked about the Saskatoon revival. Now let me give you just a little personal story of this. I was living in Kelowna, oh my goodness, this must be 35, 36 years ago. And I had a Pentecostal friend, and he wanted me to speak in tongues. And I was wrestling through the scriptures, and he gave me a pamphlet to take home. Good Pentecostal, why wouldn't, especially in those days, we did everything by pamphlets. So he sent the pamphlet home, and I started reading it. Oh, and by the way, I had, I had a good Baptist he, he, friend. He was, he was actually, uh, uh, I, we, we call him district superintendent. He was high up in the Baptist in the church I was going to. And he had been teaching me about dispensationalism. doesn't matter what it is. I'm reading through this Pentecostal pas- pamphlet, and basically it's talking about the patterns in Scripture. Even from the Old Testament into the book of Acts, Every time the spirit poured out, tongues, you know, and it went on the patterns. And I'm scratching my head going, man, I just had this talk with my pastor friend about how there's seven ages in the local church and it's patterns in scripture. And, and because of the patterns in scripture, we realize that there is no tongues today. And now I'm reading a pamphlet that said, because of the patterns in scripture, there's tongues today. And, and I said, I am so confused, God. And being a good 18-year-old at the time, I decided they both were wrong. No, I'm kidding. What, what I did decide is I decided at that point, if the scripture says it clearly, and I would argue most of the scripture is pretty clear, but there are some fuzzy spots that, you know, whether we've lost context or we don't understand the original language, unless the scripture's clear, I'm not going to get into this whole pattern thing. So number five, trying to tear down some of your biases. Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign. That's in Matthew 16, 4. I've had that one used on me. This means, they would argue, that we should not pray for the miraculous in our ministries today. The problem with this objection is that it fails to consider who Jesus' audience was when he made this statement in Matthew 16. And Matthew 16 in context shows that The wicked and adulterous generation he was talking about referred to the scribes and Pharisees who came to test Jesus by asking for a sign. This is context. Jesus was rebuking the hard-hearted unbelievers who mocked him with this request. Notice the greater frequency with which Jesus compassionately responded to the request for a miracle. Significantly, Acts chapter 4 verse 30 relates that the apostles and the early disciples prayed for signs and wonders. This is after Jesus made that statement, and that always kind of made me wonder. And then when I read and understood that in context, Jesus was talking to those horrible guys that were just trying to mock him, those religious doctrine theology people, and again, I'm not against doctrine theology. In fact, it's one of my pastimes. But these Pharisees and scribes were so irreligious. They were so caught up in ritualism. And Jesus said, you will ask for signs, and that's just blasphemy. 
Paul, rather than discouraging his readers from seeking the miraculous gifts, told them to desire them eagerly in 1 Corinthians 14. John, the apostle John, writes that many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Then he reinforces the positive role of signs in proclaiming the gospel. In, that was in chapter two of John, chapter 20, near the end of the book, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, God is still operating today the way that he has always operated. And when my Bible states something, back to my little experience at 18, I listen up. But I have shared with you how my bias, my hurt, and my experiences began to shut me down. I had okay theology. I I still would read my Bible trying to see what God would say to me, but I told you the story that my wife and I in her early marriage, I was in Bible college, I was getting steeped in theology, and she would come to me with the scripture and say, oh, this is God speaking to me and whatever it might be. I remember at one point we were supposed to move somewhere because uh, we were supposed to expand our tent pegs and posts, and I remember looking at her and going, that's not written to us, that was written to Israel. I was being good biblical scholar. And I shut my wife down up until a year ago. And I'm glad to say on Thursday night, as we were seeking God's face, God brought scriptures to her. And she would get her Bible and she'd open it up and she'd read it to me. We've been healed in that, and I will call fear that I had. My hearing God journey is very bumpy. My first time I clearly heard God was when I went to Bible college and I read, read, I read the Great Commission go and make disciples of all nations. For I was wondering if I should go to Bible college, and in my devotions, that's the passage came up. I didn't know it was a big famous passage then, by the way. I knew nothing in the faith. And I just knew I was supposed to go to Bible college. Since then, I've been hearing God and speaking to him. Sometimes it's great, and other times it's not so great. Since my journey through the hearing God classes, my hearing God has improved greatly, and it's getting better all the time. I still get things wrong, and in hearing God, in the course, we will learn how to minimize that error. I want to finish, though, with one last little story, and I know I've went all over time already. So this week, and for the last year, I've been doing this more than ever. I've shared with you how I first started preaching. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I would be always on my knees to God, oh God, please give me a story, please give me an insight, please give me an illustration, whatever it be, and I'd always be paying attention. And then over the years, I just got good at that, I have a good imagination, and I I, I still was doing that, but not as much. But God really spoke to me a year ago, like, Anthony, start listening. So come Thursday, preparing the message for today, I get through all the points, and I got them all prepared, and I go, oh, God, there must be just, just something that'll just make this come alive, and I kid you not, the thought came to my mind, get the book about the guy who had the cannonball go through his bedroom, and it landed on his bed in between his legs, and I'm going, well, that's not much to go with, God, but understand, God's working with my brain, <laughs> and that's all I remembered. And I'm going, okay, well, okay, the guy was in France. It was 1600s. I Googled it with some of that stuff, and I actually found the guy, John Welch. And uh, my wife's Baptist uncle bought me the book. 
And then we bought a children's version for my kids, and that's actually what I'm going to read for to you in a moment, mostly because it's two children and I can understand it. I remember my oldest son, he just couldn't wait till the next chapter in this book. I want to give you a little backdrop before I read anything. So John Welch, Presbyterian, Calvinist, Reformed Church, okay? Some of you understand that, some of you don't, that's okay. I mean, this guy is Bible doctrine to the moon. This is before 1918 when that book was written as a reaction against the holiness movement. And if you go to the seminar, The Hearing God, you're going to hear the presenter, Pastor Ray, talked about George Mueller. You know the guy that started the orphanages? He heard God too. So I finally phoned my wife and said, do we have that book? And she goes, well, we got the children's version at home. So I couldn't wait. I got home Thursday night. And that's, by the way, the same night that all the other hearing God happened with me. And so I'm thumbing through this book, and I, I get just a little ways in. And at this point, John Welch, he has run away from home. He was a robber for a year, basically living on the street. Gets tired of all that, wants to go home. Long story short, reconciles with his dad. His dad asks him, so what do you want to do? And he says, well, I want to go to school. And he goes, what for? And he said, I want to become a pastor. Now, your son has just confessed he's been a robber for a year. And he's come home and he's going to suddenly be a pastor. So his dad kind of snorts a bit, I guess, as the story tells. And his dad says, well, okay, fine. But you got to get really high marks. And John goes, I'll do it. Because at this point, John never applied himself in school. And apparently he got straight A's. He was brilliant, became a doctor in theology, I think. Uh, it was incredible. He uh, ends up marrying John Knox's daughter. Now, if you're any kind of Presbyterian, you'll know who that is. A great theologian. And uh, they're married in a while, and they get sent to, he's, he's in two different churches, basically ends up having to leave, doesn't go well. He gets sent to the town of Ayr. Now, I need a Scottish kind, A-Y-R. I have no idea how for you sorry, Arr, sort of like a pirate, maybe that would work. Now, air is the worst of places. There is street fights and death every night. I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, cliques and feuds and families and, and rivalries, and it's just bad. It's an evil town. So John shows up there, and there's not many in the church at all. And his wife is hoping that marriage has kind of settled him down. Like John is just this renegade guy. He can take on the world, go, you know, 100, go around, trip around the world in a half tank gas. And so she's, but it, unfortunately, it doesn't work. So I'm reading through the book and, and there's street fights going on. And John goes out there without a sword. Now remember, he used to work with thieves. And he stands up and he knows how to handle them. And he basically, he makes the thieves sit down on the street and have a meal together. Within two years, the feuding has stopped. There's no more fighting. People are getting along. Well, he's starting to get a little bit famous to the point in Scotland that the king of England is taking notice of his reputation. And he's, the king of England's getting worried about the Presbyterians. And if you know anything, Presbyterianism did grow huge in Scotland. So he ends up getting exiled to, uh, to France, but just before he gets exiled, his wife is worried about him. He'd just been out rescuing some people fighting. 
she goes across the room to uh, go to the room where he's praying, and she knows that. She walks up to the door, and she hears him say, I want all of Scotland. There's a pause. She's just about to open the door, and she hears the words, is that all? She goes in and through a little bit of dialogue, and this is one human being that John will actually listen to is this little wispy, feisty woman. And she eventually asks him, like, what's the conversation with God? And God, he goes, well, I told God I want all of Scotland. And she said, well, what did he say? And he said, I'll give you a remnant, that's it. And then he cast his head down and he said, but he told me something else. And she said, what? that we were going to go through a real tough time. Now, if you read the rest of the book, you'll find out he ends up in exile in France. He learns French, by the way, in 18 months, fluently. He has to read his sermons to begin with. But he ends up with this canon coming through because the French come. They don't like him any better than the English do. And uh, they go through real tough times. And then, so I'm, I'm looking through the book a little bit more. And I come across this story, and it's one of the chapters, and there's this Catholic friar, like, and this, the description is just like you see in the cartoons. He's overweight, he likes eating food, and uh, he comes to the town in France, I don't remember the name of the town, and he comes, he runs into a farmer, this friar, and he says, is there anywhere I can get lodging for the night? I'm really tired. And the farmer goes, well, there is no, like, official place, but, you know, there's this family, the Welches, they'll take anybody in. <laughs> now, by the way, the whole town had been saved already at this point by John. And uh, so then the friar says, well, what, tell me about this guy. Well, he's a Presbyterian pastor. Now, the friar, being well learned in the Catholic faith, had been told that Presbyterian pastors, especially Protestant pastors, their houses are demon-filled and haunted. So just that backdrop. So he gets to the house. They've already eaten a meal, but they invite him in anyway. They say, well, go up to your room. And so they take him up to his room with nice hot basin water and some cloths and towels. And then they bring him supper. They warmed up supper for him. They bring in the, the friar, of course, is thrilled. And then he goes to bed, big comfy feather bed. Now don't get sleepy. Big comfy, or hungry, big comfy feather bed. And he falls asleep and he wakes up at two in the morning and sure enough, what does he hear? He's sure it's a demon or at the worst even a ghost. And he hears John praying is what he heard. He's so freaked out, he, he kind of puts the pillows over his head and pulls the covers right up and he couldn't wait to get up in the morning and he, he was going to rush out but remember he liked food so he eats breakfast and then he leaves and he sees the farmer in the town as he's rushing out and the farmer says, so how was your night? And the friar looks at him and said, it was awful. And the farmer's surprised that why was it awful? Well, I woke up at two in the morning and I could hear demons and ghosts. It was awful. And the farmer laughs at him and says, oh, no, sir. The man you stayed with is a man of God. And what you heard was him in prayer. So that kind of intrigues the friar. In fact, so much so that he decides to go back there the next night, especially for the food, and he eats the meal. And he goes up to bed with a nice warm basin and crawls into the feather bed. He can't wait to fall asleep because he knows that at two in the morning he's going to hear the haunting again. And sure enough, he wakes up at two in the morning. And at two in the morning he goes out of his bed 
goes out into the hall, follows the sound. He's on his hands and knees at the door that he hears the voices coming out of. And I better get my glasses on or I won't be able to read. Last service, there was an optometrist, and it wasn't good. But anyway, he's saying I should get new glasses. So he's kneeling at the door. And then this peace comes over him, and he pushes the door open, and John looks at him, shocked at seeing the friar in his night clothes. And the friar is just as shocked because he'd opened the door. The friar scrambled to his feet as fast as his great weight would allow, and he went towards the minister with no idea of what he would say. Then the words tumbled out. I want to know God the way that you know him, he said earnestly. I want to be able to talk with him the way that you do. John started to answer, but the friar rushed on, unable to stop now that he had made the plunge. Last night when I was in bed, I heard you talking with someone. I thought the house was spooked. I thought, I thought you were talking to the devil. But I talked to a farmer this morning, and he told me, he told me that you prayed more than any man in France, that you were talking with God. So I came by, back. I had to know. He was weeping now, unashamed. I want to know God the way that you do. I want to know him more than anything else in the world. You can, John said. It's no secret, dear friar. You see, I joined a band of thieves once when I was a lad, and then I decided to go back to my father. I went back to my human father, yes, but even more, I went back to my heavenly father and to Jesus for Jesus is God, they are one and to the same. I talked with him then, and I've been talking to him ever since. He has guided my life every step of it from that day to this day. But this power that you have, the friar gasped, this power is not my power, John said. It is the power of God, and you can have it too. They prayed together then, and for the first time in his life, the friar really talked to God. He was no longer the poor friar. He went back to his room, a rich man. The next morning, he washed, washed in his, his basin, but the water that washed over him was nothing compared to the peace that washed over his heart. At breakfast, when John read the Bible and they prayed, the good friar joined in heartily, and after breakfast, he went on his way rejoicing. Back at the house, John and Elizabeth knew John and Elizabeth were rejoicing too. Life had its ups and downs with them, but this most surely was an up. But John knew in his heart that soon a down was coming. Dark days were ahead again. What they would be, he did not know. What they would hold, he did not know. He just knew this, that they were coming. But in this, his life, he had never been prepared for this. It came like a thunderclap, and all I can say is I'm glad that he listened and talked to God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, I just, I know that you want a relationship with us, and forgive us, God, for our hurt, our confusion, and our inexperience in the word. 
we want to open up our hearts to you and hear your voice. And I know, Holy Spirit, that you want to speak to some that have been too busy. Uh, they're just kind of reconnecting now. They've got a big life ahead of them in September, October. And six weeks of classes is overwhelming. But Holy Spirit, speak now to people. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.